Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Joalani Tulo and Tami Kuza. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN Commission of Inquiry recommends an international criminal tribunal for Central African Republic. Police continue to maintain heavy presence outside Zambia's National Results Center and Rotary International commits 18.5 million US dollars for polio eradication initiatives. In economics news, oil prices dip ahead of the announcement of a bond buying by the European Central Bank and in sports news, fans and police clash at AFCON match. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Voting in Zambia's presidential by-election is to continue into its third day today after bad weather prevented the timely delivery of voting materials. The country's electoral commission says about half a dozen polling stations and remote areas will open in what is expected to be the last day of polling. The commission has suspended the announcement of results until all voting ends. Initial results show the ruling Patriotic Front's Edgar Lungo taking an early lead. The party spokesperson Emmanuel Muamba. Uh, Honorable Edgar Lungo has issued a statement that uh, restraining our party cadres, we should allow for the ECZ to do its job. It's not up to us to de- self-declare ourselves as winners. So the act of misconduct, the act of, 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 of misbehaving is coming from the UPNDB. South Sudan's warring factions have signed a deal in Tanzania meant to serve as a roadmap toward ending a conflict that has killed thousands of people in the world's newest state. The agreement aimed at unifying and reconciling the three factions of the ruling Sudan People's Liberation Movement was signed in Arusha yesterday. It was mediated by regional leaders. Fighting erupted in December 2013 in South Sudan, which had declared independence from Sudan in 2011. After months of rising tension between President Kiir and his sect deputy, Rahik Machar. A ceasefire signed in January last year has been broken frequently and the peace talks often stalled. A high-ranking commander of the Lord's Resistance Army has been transferred to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The move has been welcomed by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and the prosecutor of the RCC, Fatou Bin Suda. An arrest warrant for Dominique Ongwen had been issued in 2005 for war crimes allegedly committed in Uganda. He surrendered earlier this month in the Central African Republic. Bin Suda says Ongwen's transfer brings the LRA's reign of terror in the Great Lakes region, one step closer. For more than a quarter of a century, the LRA under Joseph Kony and his high command, that includes Ongwen, 
have terrorized the people of northern Uganda and neighboring countries. The LRA has reportedly killed tens of thousands and displaced millions of people. Meanwhile, UN investigators are pushing for the establishment of an international tribunal to investigate and prosecute war crimes in the Central African Republic. More than two years of civil war and sectarian violence have displaced hundreds of thousands of people and led to widespread human rights abuses. Two million are also in need of humanitarian aid as a result of the ongoing crisis. Philip Alston is a member of the UN International Commission of Inquiry on the Central African Republic. Our report concludes that crimes against humanity were widely committed by all parties to the conflict. The crime against humanity, which covers forced displacement and so on amounting to ethnic cleansing, clearly is extremely serious. We have therefore recommended very strongly that uh, accountability mechanisms must be put in place. And finally, one and a half billion dollars is needed over the next six months to fight the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Around 8,500 people have died from the disease in the three worst affected countries, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. UN Deputy Spokesperson Fahan Haq says the number of new cases is now in decline, but more money is needed. The work is not yet over. Our goal must be to get to zero cases and there's a long way to go. So continued financial and political support is needed. There's no room for complacency. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A UN Commission of Inquiry into Violence and Rights Abuses in the Central African Republic has called on the Security Council and the international community to establish an international criminal tribunal for the country. Addressing the media in New York after the report was released earlier this month, Commissioners call for strong accountability mechanisms to be established in a country unable to meet the security and judicial needs of its population. The report found that while the potential for genocide existed in the country, crimes against humanity were widely committed after the overthrow of President Francois Bozizé in a coup in 2013. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Thousands died in the carnage that followed the coup, including 14 SANDF troops in the early stages, with at least half a million displaced by the fighting that developed into ethnic cleansing. Philip Alston is a member of the Commission of Inquiry, appointed by UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon last year. We therefore recommend very strongly that a special tribunal be set up Our own preference would be for a fully internationalized tribunal, but the United Nations is in the process of negotiating the establishment of a special criminal court within 
car within its national legal system. If that goes ahead, we are extremely concerned to make sure that a majority of the judges and the president are from the international community. Commissioners don't believe the CAR has the capacity to provide judges who are able to render decisions that would hold perpetrators to account, while the question of financing becomes an immediate concern. All countries in the Council uh, profess themselves to be fully in favour of accountability and to ending impunity. Problem, it's going to cost money. And the risk, I think, is that in an effort to avoid the expenditure of funds, the Council might almost unwittingly accept a very um, unsatisfactory solution which will actually do more harm than good. In other words, if you set up a tribunal which is not sufficiently funded, not sufficiently independent, then it's going to do more harm than good. So at a certain point, the Council has to come to grips with the fact that resources must be found if they are serious about tackling impunity in the car. The report pointed to the deployment of French and African forces, eventually replaced in September by a fully-fledged UN peacekeeping mission that prevented a greater explosion of violence in the country. Fatimata Mbai of the Commission. We didn't say that there is not, uh, I mean... Uh, a possibility that genocide can happen. We have all the criterion uh, for the genocide it is existing in CAR. But right now, we, we think it is uh, early to, to assess that it is a genocide. But if the international committee doesn't pay attention, it can happen because we are uh, really... Uh, very uh, sure that uh, um, uh, the crime against humanity happens and they kill many, 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 several persons in the car and others flew out uh, the country uh, to the neighboring country. Commissioners presented their findings to the Security Council earlier this week. Council members have yet to indicate how they will deal with this report or whether they will act on its recommendations to establish an international tribunal. I'm Sherman Bryce in New York. The International Criminal Court's prosecutor yesterday called for renewed efforts to arrest notorious militia leader Joseph Kony after one of his top commanders was taken into custody to face charges of leading a reign of terror in Central Africa. Dominic Ongwen, one of Kony's top commanders, was transferred to the court's detention center yesterday, two weeks after being taken into custody in the Central African Republic. Jack Parrock witnessed the transfer at The Hague and filed this report. It's likely Dominic Ongwen will be spending at least the next few years of his life incarcerated in the ICC detention facility, while the process of pre-trial hearings and eventually trial takes place. He was abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army at the age of 10 in northern Uganda and rose through the ranks to become a commander. His defence are likely to argue the young age from which he was exposed to LRA atrocities diminishes his criminal responsibility. Alison Smith from No Peace Without Justice explains what will happen now. The first thing that will happen is there will be a hearing to confirm the charges against him. Uh, at this hearing, the prosecution will bring evidence uh, to, in support of the charges that they have made 
and the judges will decide if there's a reasonable basis to proceed to trial on those charges or not. Uh, once that decision is made, uh, if the charges are not confirmed, he will be released. If the charges are confirmed, then the trial process uh, will begin. Ongwen was one of five LRA commanders who were the first to be issued indictments by the International Criminal Court when it was founded ten years ago. He will face seven charges minimum of crimes against humanity and war crimes for acts conducted in Uganda, the Central African Republic and South Sudan. The four other commanders remain at large. Fatou Ben Soda is the ICC prosecutor. I urge all others that still remain within LRA ranks to abandon violence Stop committing crimes and follow the bold steps of others before you. I also encourage all states to renew and refocus efforts to secure the arrest of Joseph Kony, as well as all other ICC fugitives. The victims of their crimes have waited far too long and deserve to see justice done. Ongwen will undergo a medical test before facing judges for the first time in a matter of days. It's been an international effort involving authorities from the Central African Republic, Uganda and the US to get him here, but the transfer will be felt by the ICC to be a success for the court. The prosecutor will now throw everything behind forming a case to convict Dominic Ongwen and to try to get justice for the victims. Jack Parrick at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. As world leaders, bankers and the wealthy business elite gathers at the Swiss Alps resort of Davos, one woman is stealing the limelight. Winnie Banya Nima, an executive director of British charity group Oxfam, has rattled the world after penning a document warning that 1% of the world's rich people will own more than half of the global wealth by the end of next year. The document has become the focal point of discussion at the World Economic Forum currently underway in Davos. Tsepo Ikaneng is in Davos and caught up with Oxfam's Winnie Banyanyima. I'm delighted to be here to bring the message of poor people around the world to the political and economic elites who are going to be here. We wrote that report because... A woman on a mission... Ugandan-born Winnie Bianyima is one of the most sought-after guests for interviews by major global news networks. Her document titled, and I quote, Having it all and wanting more, unquote, has revealed startling statistics about the widening gap between the rich and poor. The study commissioned by Oxfam has warned that by the middle of next year, 1% of the world's population will own more than 50% of the global wealth. Oxfam says growing inequality is threatening the global economy. Bianima, who is Oxfam executive director, says governments can start to redress these economic imbalances by investing in public services such as healthcare and education. Extreme inequality puts a break on growth, even for these business people who pursue profits and for, who see growth as what they are most interested in. Extreme inequality reduces that growth. But also, extreme inequality leads to elite capture of democracies. You see that the very, very wealthy use their money to have political and economic influence that continues to protect their profits and that crowds out the voices and the interests of poor people. So democracy is undermined. 
social stability is undermined, social cohesion is undermined. In a situation where people are excluded and, children, and their children are not getting the opportunities to come out of poverty, you lock out millions and you create social strife and that doesn't benefit even the profit seekers. The charity group has also called for reforms of the global tax system to prevent the rich and multinationals from taking their profits to tax havens. According to Oxfam, Africa loses about 63 billion US dollars a year to tax evasion by multinational companies and wealthy investors. It states that the amount lost over the last three decades is almost equivalent to the continent's current growth domestic product. We must stop tax dodging and introduce and close all the loopholes that these rich companies and rich people use to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. And we must have a system that taxes progressively so that the richer pay more and the poor pay less in taxes. So reforming the global tax system is a very important part of the solution. Fixing the global tax system is a critical part of tackling inequalities. For Winnie Bianima to be invited to the World Economic Forum to co-chair one of the premier sessions is an honor, but not for her, but for millions of people she describes as being locked out of the club of the global elite. And I have said that it was an act of courage of the World Economic Forum to ask me, the head of Oxfam International, to be a co-chair because indeed our message is tough, our message is challenging. We challenge business leaders here not to think only about their profits. We challenge them about the social impact and, the, and their impact on the environment through their supply chains. We ask them to make commitments, public commitments, and follow them through in their companies to make them money without further damage to the environment and doing justice to the people who supply them and who work for them. In response to Oxfam's report, the World Economic Forum published a 14-point plan to tackle global inequality. The forum has urged governments to, among other things, invest in public services and eradicate corruption. Tsepo Ikaneng in Davos, Switzerland. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the country is experiencing a minor setback but is en route to economic recovery. He was addressing South African delegates attending the World Economic Forum in the Swiss ski resort of Davos. Zuma has urged business delegates to partner with government to help restore investor confidence in the country's economy. Witness Diva is in Davos and sent this report. Braving the sub-zero temperatures of the Swiss Alpine resort of Davos, President Zuma marshaled the several cabinet ministers accompanying him to hit the ground running and punt South Africa to investors. About 40 heads of states and government and over a thousand business leaders have converged in Davos to tackle some of the pressing socio-economic challenges facing the planet. Despite the filtering economy and energy shortage crisis crippling the country's economy, President Zuma told delegates the country remains stable and a key investment hub. Zuma urged the business sector to partner with government to restore investor confidence. We are a country at work. Certain that that message to the companies and governments we are going to be interacting with here in Davos will be clear. 
that South Africa is open for business and that we are a country at work and that indeed South Africa is an important destination for investment. We are here in Davos to invite more development partners to join us in moving South Africa forward towards prosperity and a better life for all. And we offer many opportunities in return. In a move to quell investor concerns over energy security, President Zuma says government has extended the introduction of new independent power suppliers to support government's initiative to diversity of energy mix. We are currently considering options to increase the availability of electricity generation capacity and to manage demand over the next six months in order to reduce this risk of load shedding. We will build on the success of the renewable energy procurement program to ensure that we have a reliable, flexible, clean and cost-competitive electricity generation mix. The president has also assured global investors that government has made strides in stabilizing the mining sector. Last year, the country's economy was negatively affected by a five-month-long strike by platinum miners. We have been working hard together as business, government and labor to stabilize and revitalize the mining sector and we are making good progress. Our framework agreement for sustainable mining industry has yielded desirable results as evidenced by stability. Meanwhile, Reserve Bank Governor Lisecha Khanyago has told the SABC that the National Development Plan will help address the country's socio-economic challenges. It is the National Development Plan. The National Development Plan has been um, given effect through the medium-term strategic framework and that medium-term strategic framework was also resourced um, when the Minister of Finance tabled the, uh, the budget policy statement uh, in uh, uh, last year and uh, that uh, South Africa has got uh, very important strength. South Africa has got a proud history of macroeconomic stability. President Zuma will today hold a bilateral talks with the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Root, before participating in a business roundtable witness by Davos, Switzerland. In his second-to-last State of the Union address, President Barack Obama declared an end to the economic crisis that has shaped his six years in office while proposing a broad economic agenda to help the middle class that is unlikely to endear him to parts that oppose him. Despite his party suffering massive losses in the November midterm elections that saw them yield control of both houses of Congress for the first time during his, this administration, President Obama appeared confident as he set out an agenda for the remaining two years that has little chance of support for a, from a skeptical Republican caucus. Show and Bryce Peace reports. If the next day's reaction is anything to go by, then this is a defiant president who has proposed a sweeping middle-class economic agenda that will find little support in the Republican-dominated House of Representatives and Senate. From tax increases on the wealthy, free community college for the first two years, to prodding Congress to lift the economic embargo on Cuba. With an eye firmly on his legacy, President Obama trumpeted his administration's economic progress. After a breakthrough year for America... Our economy is growing and creating jobs at the fastest pace since 1999. While thumbing his nose at his critics. Middle class economics works. 
Expanding opportunity works. And these policies will continue to work as long as politics don't get in the way. Political commentator Professor Joshua Brown of the City University of New York believes the president is also focused on what he will leave behind. It's certainly looming in the background. Uh, you know, the specter of his legacy is there now, and, and there was a good deal in the speech about you know what he has accomplished. Uh, he's certainly obviously beginning to think along those lines and clearly would like to go out uh, with a bang. The president on several occasions threatened to veto any legislation that undermined his agenda while urging Congress to work with him, including on lifting the decades-long embargo on Cuba. We are ending a policy that was long past its expiration date. When what you're doing doesn't work for 50 years, it's time to try something new. I would say a large part of the public has no idea why it took place. Having said that, without the Congress raising the embargo, uh, for all intents and purposes, this will be more of an important gesture that will certainly, if nothing else, raise tourism right now. But I'm not sure uh, in the long run whether this, in fact, will not be something resolved in another administration. A posture that conveys President Obama still in charge in a country where the rarity of compromise has become a defining yet unfortunate characteristic. There's always, of course, the hope that um, the, some of the issues around, for example, taxation and the minimum wage may have uh, a local thrust that would, uh, that would require or certainly impel some of the uh, Republicans in the legislature to feel they have to vote for it or at least make some sort of compromise. But I think the vast majority of the possibilities in, in the next two years are in vetoing things that would, for all intents and purposes, contradict that uh, agenda, that progressive agenda, or that certainly liberal agenda. And that's, I think, what, what is most likely to take place if, indeed, Obama continues to be uh, vociferous and uh, assertive in the same stance that he took last night. Thank you. God bless you. God bless this country we love. Thank you. Although two years away, the conversation about the next presidential election has unquestionably already begun. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Police continue to maintain a heavy presence outside Zambia's National Results Center after police fired tear gas to disperse opposition protesters. United Party for National Development loyalists gathered outside the polling center Wednesday morning as results for the presidential by-election began trickling in. Zambia's Electoral Commission says it has since suspended the announcements until the mop-up voting exercise in remote areas is completed. Zambians were forced to go to the polls within 90 days following the death of President Michael Sata. Shingai Nyoka reports. Police arrived in truckloads as tensions escalated at Mulungushi Conference Center, the national elections results venue. They were armed with guns, tear gas and baton sticks to subdue opposition supporters demanding the immediate release of election results. As I arrived on the scene, three of them had been thrown into the police vehicle and were clearly distraught. <laughs> A 
An eyewitness says police sprayed tear gas into the small crowd to disperse them. The main opposition party and uh, one of the front runners in, the, in this presidential election feels uh, that uh, they have won the election based on the, the votes that uh, they have been tabulated using the prior voter tabulation. These guys had vowed not to leave this place because if they left the place, they suspected that uh, the ruling PF cadres and uh, the, some of the, the police officers who were here, because they suspect them to be PF, would uh, get inside the Mulungusha and try to manipulate with the election results. The Electoral Commission of Zambia, ECZ, says it's faced unprecedented challenges accessing areas affected by floods. The commission's chairperson, Irene Mambilima, explains. We have had to use boats up to a certain point this morning, and up from that point up to the polling station, we shall use ox cuts to take the materials to the polling stations. So this is the situation we are faced with. The commission has decided to suspend the announcement of results until those 21,000 registered voters cast their ballots. They must vote with a free mind, unhindered by speculation, of who is the leading candidate, who is the trailing candidate, so that at the end of the day, they exercise their right to vote just as everybody else did. The decision has angered some political parties. They are demanding the immediate release of the results to maintain peace. Some party supporters have already started celebrating victory, but the ECZ is standing its ground. I appeal to these two parties, PF and UPND, KGO Kadas. We are not going to make a premature announcement because you think you can go on the street and use violence to intimidate the commission to make a decision which is not the right decision. Meanwhile, the United Party for National Development leader Haikande Hishilema says he's lodged objections to the commission about the vote extensions. Once you suppress citizens, either through denying them their right to participate in elections, or indeed their right to exercise their freedoms through the restriction like we have in Zambia. Under the PF, we have a breakdown in the rule of law. About 14 districts' results that were released before the suspension show the Patriotic Front's Edgar Lungu leading with more than 75% of the votes as the elections that began peacefully slowly descend into chaos. I'm Shinganyoka in Lusaka, Zambia. The non-profit organization Rotary International has committed 18.5 million U.S. dollars to be divided amongst an additional seven African countries for polio eradication initiatives. Nigeria remains the only country on the continent where the crippling disease is endemic. It is only recently that the West African nation saw tremendous progress in fighting polio, last recording cases of the disease six months ago. However, it remains a threat to the rest of the region and the world as long as it has not been declared polio-free. Jane Matebula reports. Rotary International has long been at the forefront of polio eradication initiatives globally. To date, the organization has donated more than 1.3 billion U.S. dollars to fight the crippling disease. It has just announced 8.5 million U.S. dollars to support Africa's last polio endemic country, Nigeria, in its final push to eradicate the disease within its borders. However, an additional seven countries on the continent, including Cameroon, Chad and Ethiopia, have also received funding for polio initiatives. Elaborating more on the significance of further funding is Rotary National Polio Plus Chair in Nigeria, Dr. Tunji Funsho. Those countries are currently polio-free. Uh, you know, particularly countries in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya in particular. As long as there's one case of polio in Africa, 
all children in Africa are vulnerable. Indeed, all children in the world are vulnerable. So Rosie wants to ensure that even in this environment that have been certified polio-free, that polio doesn't re-enter those nations. As you may be aware, India was uh, certified polio-free only almost a year ago now. But even then, India continues to expend a lot of human and material resource to ensure that you know, children in those countries continue to be immunized. Surveillance exercises continue to ensure that they don't meet any polio cases. And so in these countries also, we still expend a lot of money on surveillance to ensure that we don't miss any polio cases. And also ensure that children continue to receive the polio vaccine through routine immunization exercises. Outside of Africa, Rotary has also announced grants of 1.1 million US dollars for Pakistan and 6.7 million US dollars for Afghanistan. Together with Nigeria, Pakistan and Afghanistan are the two other countries in the world where polio has never been stopped. Well, in these two countries, we have uh, Rotary National Polio Cross Committees, which is made up of senior Rotarians. And that report by Jane Matebula. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Voting in Zambia's presidential by-election to continue into its third day today after bad weather prevented the timely delivery of voting materials. South Sudan's warring factions sign a roadmap deal toward ending conflict that has killed thousands of people in the world's newest state. And UN investigators push for the establishment of an international tribunal to investigate and prosecute war crimes in the Central African Republic. Those are the stories making headlines. South Africa's Tuane Metro Council Executive Mayor Khosien Zuramukhopa says authorities will use the blanket court order obtained in November last year to deal with any person occupying land illegally. Speaking at a media briefing in the country's Pretoria, which is the capital city, Ramukhopa criticized the EFF's land grab program. He also accused the EFF of toying with the emotions of the poor by playing cheap politics. Meanwhile, the EFF has denied being the initiator of land grabs in Tswane. Neo Makwiting reports. Ramokhupa has warned that any illegal land grab action will be met with the strong arm of the law. He says the EFF, which is championing the Zimbabwe-style land grabs, is trying to derail the progress made by the ruling party in providing millions of houses and accommodation for the poor. Ramukhopa says government will not tolerate programs encouraging lawlessness and anarchy. I think it's unhelpful. You are breeding chaos. You are undermining investment. You are undermining the poor. Because you play on the emotions, you are fighting and stunting projects that are meant to benefit them in the main. You are trying to draw political currency. So that's something that is unacceptable, escalated it to the law enforcement agency. They've got competency to deal with it. What are we doing as the city to address that? We're getting a general court interdict that is applicable across the city. So that as and when people occupy, we are able to address it. The EFF... National spokesperson 
Fana Mukwena says the land occupation by residents of Tswani is motivated by the slow pace and failure of government to provide people with houses. Our understanding is that the community um, occupied land because they had not been afforded a place to stay for a long time. And um, and we as the EFF, as in our funding manifesto, we, 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 we support such action. We, and uh, Ramakopa and cohorts can call it whatever they want, but we were supporting an action by the community there. Ramakopa says both the council and the Gauteng Human Settlements Department have started a joint project with big business to build more than 120,000 houses in the current financial year. He says the municipality is also contemplating putting government land under its control on the open market to finance the ambitious housing project. We're going to yield 82,000 units ourselves and province. 35 accounted by ourselves, 37,000 accounted by ourselves and province. An additional 40,000 by private sector players. So it comes to about 120,000 units that will be yielded. It's 82 plus 40. We have identified already strategic land parcels. Council has approved. will go on land auction so that we use that money to finance the poor. Ramukhopa has considered that the global population explosion and migration are impacting negatively on government programs to deal with the ever-increasing number of informal settlements and homelessness. Those people don't locate in the far-flung areas of Hamanskral, in the far-flung areas of uh, uh, Brongol Spread, but they want to be as close as possible to the nuclear, the centers of economic production. And it is for that reason that uh, the problem of uh, informal settlement is not something that will be resolved anything in the near future. At the current trends of investment, at the current trends of uh, migration, so you are unlikely going to resolve that. Ramokhopa says the census 2011 revealed that the city alone attracts more than 10,000 new people every year. He says the unchecked migration has the potential of delaying the government's plan of achieving the UN Millennium Goal of reducing informal settlement by the end of the year. Ramukhopa says the movement of people from the rural to urban areas is motivated by several factors such as lack of job opportunities, the inequality in investments and development in the rural areas and former homelands. I'm Namakwitin in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Despite the progress made in recent years to address the challenges the South African deaf community faces, deaf South Africans say a lot still needs to be done. The non-governmental organization has for years been advocating for the country to introduce sign language as the 12th official language. However, many say the government is moving at a snail's pace to address such issues. In our weekly look at health issues... Bruno Drachen, National Director for Deaf South Africa, says, speaks to Elizabeth Lidicha about the work Deaf SA does and the problems deaf people face. 
the organization that is represented by deaf by deaf people that are lobbying for deaf people's linguistic rights and also we do not turn anyone away and we also provide social services, South African Sign Language Interpreter Services, there is job placement and employment for deaf people. Do we know how many people in South Africa are deaf? Yes. In South Africa, there's 1.5 million deaf and hard of hearing people in South Africa. We currently have 600,000 deaf people that prefer to use South African Sign Language as a medium of communication. You've been advocating for the South African Sign Language to become the 12th official language. Is the government beginning to listen? Yes, this has been strongly advocating for that. The new government came into place, and that's 20 years ago. Government, we do not know what is now the barriers that have been caused by government to officialize this as an official language. DEFSA has made amendments to the, the Constitution, we make a submission for amendment to the Constitution so that this can be the 12th official language. This also have made several submissions to part why the Constitution needs to be reviewed and why this needs to be seen as an official language. But what's the one thing that the South African deaf community has that other deaf communities lack in Africa, for instance? Our government is supporting us by providing subsidies that is not happening in other Africa countries. I know that deaf associations have to close their doors because government is not subsidizing them in order to provide social services or South African financing to the services, whatever the services in the deaf community is needed. And we are very fortunate in South Africa that we do have a government that supports NGOs and that do support us as an organization to provide a service to the deaf community. On the other hand, tell us about the special problems that you face today. We do face the following problems and challenges. Is that television is not accessible. DEFSA have made several, several submissions to Parliament. Laws have been changed, like the Telecommunications Act, the Broadcasting Act is up for review. So many policies has been in place. They submit submissions to the CASA regulation, but still we don't have 100% access to television by means of subtitles. But the problem is, is that like the SABC and like the other broadcasters are against it because it's going to cost them money. The draft regulations came out of from ICASA and it said 100% subtitles within one year. When the draft regulations came out again for comments, it was 10% per year for the next 10 years. So somebody is influencing that. And we are South African citizens. We live in South Africa. We are paying our dues by paying our taxes. And why can't we have full access to information? Because in all those policies, they say that they are there for the public of South Africa. And we, are we excluded? Are we excluded from knowing what the president is saying when he addresses the nation? So those kind of things are difficult facing. And then employment. And employment in general, these people are not fully incorporated in the labor sector as yet.
You spoke about not accessing TV. Would you say that the government has made enough progress in addressing most of your concerns? Yes, I do, but government is government. Like any government is driven by politics. We have setbacks if ministers are changed. Ministers, I think they know better than the community out there that uses South African sign language. So, yeah, but government has played their part, and, but they need to do, do more. They really need to do more in order to put us equal to other South African citizens. For people out there who want to join in and be part of your organization, how can they do that? You mentioned earlier that you do not discriminate. Yes, by contacting us and see where they can be part and they can see where they can employ these people, where we are open to everybody to be part of our organization. So you just need to, and we are in all the provinces, DESA has 19 offices and we have nine provincial councils. So people can definitely become part of our organization if they have the same values and beliefs will support our mission and vision. That was Bruno Drushen, National Director for Deaf South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Our economics update up next with Jualani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Oil prices have dipped ahead of the expected announcement of a bond-buying program by the European Central Bank today. The program could push the dollar to new highs and put downward pressure on commodities. European Central Bank Executive Board has proposed a program that would enable it to buy $58 billion in bonds a month starting in March. The expected stimulus program has put pressure on the euro and sent the dollar seen as a safe haven soaring. The rising dollar helped by... by by help further rather by an expected U.S. interest rate hike this year and an American economy that is growing while Europe and Asia slow has put downward pressure on oil which has seen prices move than half since last June due to oversupply in part produced by soaring U.S. output. The South African government has procured 4,000 megawatts of electricity from private producers. The announcement was made by President Jacob Zuma at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He says 923 megawatts of independent power has already been connected to the national grid. Zuma says the renewable energy procurement process has attracted more than $7 billion from private investors. The government has procured 4,000 megawatts from the independent power producers. To date, 923.18 megawatts have been connected to the national grid. First two big windows of the renewable energy procurement process attracted more than 82 billion rand from private investors. 
Nigerian traders have agreed to curb dealing in the Naira should the currency fluctuate more than 2% against the dollar a day. Slowing down currency trades will help moderate movements and give policymakers time to identify why demand has increased before intervening with dollars. Traders had previously agreed to a 3% swing. The Financial Markets Dealers Association of Nigeria met in Lagos yesterday, a day after the Central Bank of Africa's largest economy ignored calls to devalue the Naira and kept its key lending rate on hold at a record of 13%. The Naira weakened as much as 1.6%, an all-time low on a closing basis. Algeria's Prime Minister Abdel Malek Salal says plans to drill the country's abundant shale gas reserves have been scrapped. This in the wake of a string of protests in the southern desert cities over environmental concerns near where drilling had already begun. Despite high-profile announcements in December that drilling had been authorized, Salal says there has never been any plans to commercially exploit the gas, adding that initial drilling near the town of Salah was just experimental. Algeria has the third-largest estimate estimated shale gas reserves in the world. And finally, the Egyptian currency has reached its lowest point ever against the dollar after losing its value for the fourth time over the past seven days. The Egyptian Central Bank announced yesterday the exchange rate of 7.34 Egyptian pounds per dollar, showing a 0.05 increase compared to a day earlier. Thus, while the value of the pound had remained unchanged for six months, raising doubts for investors and economists that the, that the currency was overvalued. Economic analysts also believe that the new development will deter foreign investment in the volatile country following four years of unrest and political instability which led to the ouster of East Egypt's long-serving leader Hosni Mubarak in 2011 and the first democratically elected president Mohamed Morsi in 2013. Taking a look at your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 11.56 South African rands, at 9.48 Botswana Pula and at 6.48 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.66 to the British pound and at 0.86 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,292 and platinum at $1,274 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $48.86 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tu. Thank you, Jalani. Our sports update up next with Tammy Kuza. Thanks for joining us in your sports update. Let's start with soccer, where police responded with tear gas at fans who threw rocks at, uh, outside of the Afghan match that was between host Equatorial Guinea and Burkina Faso. Witnesses fans threw rocks at police who responded by firing tear gas at the time the Equatorial Guinea Burkina Faso game was kicking off. And while supporters 
were trying to get into the game to watch the home team play at Bata Stadium. South Africa's Bafana Bafana are back to the drawing board following a 3-1 defeat at the hands of Algeria in the opening of Group C match. Sports Minister Figile Mbalula says that the team is undergoing a rebuilding and transformation process. He says that the nation has to encourage them. Let us encourage them to continue to do well. People were a bit emotional, we accept, and I'm happy about the turn of events after. That was the heat of the moment. It's like when you are angry for your lover and then the next moment you realize, hey, I nearly threw the best person. You come back and pleading, hey, please, baby, man, come back. I really made a mistake. Because you were drunk in love. That's what Beyonce says. Drunk in love. We criticize this team because we love them. Besides the expectation, when they had to play, they played. Meanwhile, South Africa's under-20 soccer team Amajit attend on a second-half stunning performance to storm into the last four of the Commonwealth Cup that is taking place in St. Petersburg in Russia. After overcoming host to Russia 2-0 in a thrilling quarter-final encounter, the South Africans will now meet Belarus for a place in the final. A quick look in cricket, South Africa is to a nine-wicket win over the West Indies in the third one-day international at Buffalo Park in East London yesterday. Natli Chamanos was there for us. A poor performance from the West Indies with the bat has meant that the series has already gone South Africa's way with still two matches to play. At Buffalo Park, South Africa was set a target of 123 and it was never going to be enough, with South Africa reaching the target in the 25th over. Hashimamla made 61 undefeated from 63 with 9 fours, while Faf Duplessis was there with him at the end, making 51 undefeated from 71 with 5 fours. The only wicket to fall was that of Riley Rousseau. In the West Indies innings, in their 50 overs, they only managed to last 33.4, all out for 122, with a top score of 26 coming from Marlon Samuels, who faced 38 balls and hit four fours in the innings. It's now on to Port Elizabeth on Sunday for the fourth ODI, with the series already wrapped up. And now in tennis, Rafael Nadal survived a massive scare before winning a grueling five-setter with the U.S. qualifier team Smisek at the Australian Open. The 14-time Grand Slam champion prevailed 6-2-3-6-6-7-6-3-7-5 in four hours and 12 minutes and will now play unseeded Israel Dudi Sela in the third round. South Africa's 14th seed Kevin Anderson beat Ricardas Barankis of Lithuania 6-2, 6-2 and 7-6. And Anderson says that he knows what to expect as he keeps on moving. You know, whenever you keep moving, it's always going to get tougher. And, you know, the guys are, have now more matches under their belt. I've played uh, Richard a few times now. It's, uh, you know, I've been on the losing end a few times. I've been in them once. It was in three sets in Paris. So, uh, you know, I know what to expect. And finally with golf, Oli Fischer leads in today two of the Commercial Bank Qatar Masters in Doha after opening with an excellent 65 for 7 under par. The young Englishman is one clear of the field with the likes of NLs, Justin Rose and Paul Laurie in prominent position. Nick Dye reports. Fischer is the winner of one European Tour title in the Czech Republic in 2011. A former Walker Cup player, the 26-year-old has already had a good finish under his belt in Abu Dhabi. He's benefiting from the form of last week, making eight birdies in a controlled performance. 
Rafa Cabrera Bayo second, while there's a logjam of players on five under par. Ernie Els says he's as comfortable with his game as he's felt in a long while. Twice Doha champion Paul Laurie is looking back to form after a lengthy fallow period. Brandon Grace is continuing his good run. And Rose is there on four under, laying a good foundation for the week, with Sergio Garcia and Henrik Stenson also nicely in touch. That's the end of our sport, and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories at Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, a UN Commission of Inquiry recommends an international criminal tribunal for the Central African Republic, and Rotary International commits 18.5 million US dollars for polio eradication. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Nomalizo Mandela, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our folding news is Shebeleza by Joe Mafela.
Hi, but you should be 